William Beebe was a famous explorer, and he was a close friend of President Theodore Roosevelt. And often when he visited the president, the two men would go outdoors at night, and they would see who could find the Andromeda galaxy first. That's the nearest major galaxy to the Milky Way. And then as they gazed into the darkness and they finally found that tiny smudge of distant starlight, one of them would recite, that is the spiral galaxy of Andromeda. It is larger than our Milky Way. It's one of 100 million galaxies. It's 750,000 light years away. It consists of 100 billion suns, each larger than our sun. And after that thought had sunk in, Roosevelt would smile with that toothy grin that he had and say, now I think we're small enough. Let's go to bed. Now we know the Andromeda galaxy is 2.6 million light years away and consists of one trillion stars, about twice the number of our galaxy. And while the numbers are only estimates and they keep getting larger, the more that Hubble telescope and other means peer into distant space, Astronomers think that there are at least 100 to 200 billion galaxies, not 100 million. And Mr. Beebe and President Roosevelt would even feel smaller today. As the Apostle Paul sums up Romans chapter 11, he wants us to feel appropriately small in the presence of the sovereign God. How many of you came to church today thinking, I just want to feel small, I just want to feel <laughs> smaller and smaller Feel appropriately small in, in this presence of God who moves all of history according to his unfathomable ways and for his, his glory. We saw that in verse 33. All oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. We should stand in awe of God because he controls all of, all of history. All of history. And we're reminded of what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. God said, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, think of all those billions of galaxies, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. And what the prophet is saying is that God has an incomprehensible mind. No man, however astute, however intellectual, however spiritual, can fully plumb the depths of the infinite mind of God. And God works in ways which are mysterious to us as mankind and human beings. And this is nowhere more graphically illustrated in Scripture than it is in relationship to the history of Israel, how God has worked in Israel's history. The story of Israel demonstrates the incomprehensibly wonderful mind of God and the wonder of God's unique dealing with his people. God in his awesome sovereignty designs and controls all of history. And what Paul is doing here in Romans chapter 11 is gazing through the telescope, zeroing in, focusing in to give us a glimpse of how big God is as he invites us to take a look for, our, for ourselves. But before we zoom in the telescope, it's helpful to get a wider picture. And I want us to see how John Piper, taking these verses, has outlined four broad stages of history. 
four broad stages of history. And, and he talks about these beginning in verse 30 in here of Romans chapter 11. For as, and Paul is talking to the Gentiles here. For just as you were once were disobedient to God. Gentiles, just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, because of the Jews' disobedience. You have been shown mercy because of the Jews' disobedience. So these also now have been disobedient. The Jews have been disobedient. That because of the mercy shown to you, they may also be shown mercy. For God has shut up all disobedience, that he has shown mercy to all. So, so let's break this down so we kind of understand here what's going on. And so we see four stages of history, God's redemptive history. And to see stage one, the time of Gentile disobedience, there was a time of Gentile disobedience, turn back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis, Genesis chapter 15, 15th chapter of Genesis beginning at uh, verse 13. Here in the 15th chapter of Genesis, God has promised Abram that his descendants will be more than the stars he could count in the sky. And so instead of Roosevelt and Bibi going out trying to find the Andromeda galaxy, it's, it's kind of like Abraham's invited to go out and count all the stars you can count. Spend all night, as it were, counting all the stars. But, and then God promised Abraham his descendants would be more than the stars in the sky he could count. And then God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Abram. And a great terror and a great darkness fell upon him. Can you imagine that great terror, that great darkness? Just kind of imagine what that must feel like for a second. And God revealed to Abram that there would be the time, a time of Gentile disobedience, when God permitted the nations to go their own way, to do their own sin, to do everything they wanted to. And God described some of this history to Abram in advance in a mind-boggling statement. And he says to him in verse 13 of Genesis chapter 15, God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Have you really ever seen that verse there before? This is Abram. He's, he's, he's new according to this calling of God and God's hand on his life. And, and, and God has told Abram in advance that his descendants would be slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And then God explains why. Why they will spend 400 centuries in slavery in Egypt. You ever wondered that? Why? You know, if you watch uh, the Ten Commandments, the movie, or, or you read it in Scripture, and, and God's people for 400 years are calling out, God, save us, deliver us from this. Why so long? Why 400 years? And God says a remarkable thing in verse 16. Then in the fourth generation, that is, after the 400 years, they, the people, return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. The Why? Why 400 years? Because the iniquity of the Amorite is not complete. This is absolutely amazing as it pertains to God's sovereign control over all of history. Israel has spent four centuries in slavery. Why? Because the iniquity of the Amorites. That's another word for Canaanites. Because the Canaanites. 
the Canaanites' iniquity was not yet complete. When their sin was full to the brim, when the Canaanites' sin was full to the brim, God freed Israel from slavery in Egypt and commanded them to execute his judgment on the wicked Canaanites. Yeah, the battles Joshua fit, or fought the battle, Joshua fit the battle, those were to secure the promised land, but they were also God's judgment on the wicked, disobedient Canaanites. And Paul referred to the same time of Gentile disobedience in passing in a phrase in, in a sermon at Lystra. He said in Acts 14, 16, In the generations gone by, God permitted all the nations to go their own way, to go their own way in disobedience to God. God is calling attention to the generations. When God let the generations go their own way, God lets them fill up the measure of their sin and ripen them for judgment. Or as it says in Romans 1.28, just so they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. That's, that's stage one in redemptive history. And these stages, they're not just sequential. They kind of overlap quite a bit. But that's stage one, the time of God's or of Gentile disobedience. Now, stage two is the time of Jewish disobedience, the time of Jewish disobedience. Stage two is when the Jews, the stage was set, as it were, the stage began when Israel blazingly rejected and crucified their Messiah and Savior. When Pilate was standing before the crowd who was shouting, crucify him, he said, he was innocent of Jesus' blood. And the Jews cried out something quite remarkable in Matthew 27, verse 25, when he, Pilate said, I am innocent of the blood, they cried out, the blood shall be on us and on our children. And that has been what's been going on for 2,000 years. This was the rejection of Jesus by the Jewish people. This decisive disobedience of Israel was her refusal to accept Jesus as their Messiah, Jesus as the Christ and worship him. And Jesus said to them when they killed the son in the parable of the tenants, tenants, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, taken away from the Jews, given to the Gentiles, producing the fruit of it. Or as Paul put it here in Romans chapter 11, using the metaphor of the olive tree, Israel on account of its disobedience is now cut off from the root, cut off from, from Abraham, the root, and the Gentiles will be grafted in. Jesus says to them, because you reject the Son, the kingdom will pass over to the Gentiles who obey. And one of the staggering things about God's judgment on the Jews, that if you've been born as a Jew in the last 2,000 years, unless you are a part of the remnant according to God's gracious choice, you would have lived and died hardened toward the good news about the Savior. So stage one is the time of Gentile disobedience, which is followed by stage two, the time of Jewish disobedience, when the Jews are cut off from the olive tree. And stage three is the time of mercy for the fullness of the Gentiles. So we're back at Romans chapter 11, verse 30. The time of mercy. The Gentiles were in disobedience. Now there's a time of mercy for the fullness of the Gentiles. And speaking to the Gentiles, Paul writes in verse 30 
of Romans chapter 11. For just as you were once disobedient to God, that was stage one, the time of Gentile disobedience, but now you have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, because now the Jews disobey, you've, you've been shown mercy. And so the third stage in God's plan is when Gentiles receive mercy. Well, the Jews presently in our day, for the most part, are disobedient to God, cut off. God is showing mercy to the Gentiles by bringing them to faith in Jesus Christ. It did, God did not plan for the Great Commission to happen until after the disobedience of Israel. But then after the fullness of the Gentiles is complete, when every Gentile who will receive Christ has received Christ, then stage four, God will show mercy to the Jews. And so in verse 31 of chapter 11, we see stage four. Speaking of Israel, Paul writes, so these also now have been disobedient. The Jews have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you Gentiles, they also may now be shown mercy. The fourth stage is when the Jews who had been disobedient will receive the mercy of God. And this is after the fullness of the time of the Gentiles has come in. So there is a time of mercy for all the house of Israel. Stage one, there was a time of Gentile disobedience. Stage two, there was a time of Jewish disobedience. And during this time, the Jews are cut off on account of their disobedience. Stage three, God is showing mercy to the Gentiles, grafting them into the olive tree. And this is the stage that we live in right now until the fullness of the Gentiles is complete and has come in. And then stage four, there will be a time of mercy for all of Israel. Now, that's a broad view, and we'll kind of keep feeding that back in as we go along. But now we can take it a closer look. So now we can zoom in and try to find that one spot in God's providential sovereign history where we can zero in as President Roosevelt and Mr. Beebe tried to zero in on the Andromeda strain. We can take a closer look and see that God designs and controls all of history in order to display his faithfulness to his promises. And we see this in verse 28 of Romans chapter 11. Speaking of Israel, Paul writes, From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Verse 28 here points to the reality of the time in which we now live. It's a time of Jewish disobedience. And from the standpoint of the gospel, Paul says the Jews are enemies of God. They have rejected the gospel. They have rejected Christ. They openly speak against Christ and against the gospel. One of the things that happens when you take a tour of Israel, it'll always come up in the, the meetings as you gather together as a group and you're all excited about going to Israel. You'll hear it again when you get to Israel is this. Israel wants to have you. They want you to be in Israel. They want you to be tourists, but do not proselytize. Do not tell anybody about Jesus. 
And they make that very clear. That means, well, do you have to listen to them or what? But that's how much they rejected Christ. They don't want you to go over there, and they don't want to hear about, about Christ. Now, God is opening all kinds of doors in Israel today. There's all kinds of messianic congregations popping up all over the place and in Jerusalem and other places. But uh, they, they don't want you to come over and tell them about, about Jesus. They openly speak against Christ and against the gospel. They refuse to believe in Christ. They have turned their backs on the way of God's forgiveness. So what else could the situation be other than the Jews are the objects of divine hostility? The word translated enemy here literally means hostile. They are enemies of God. They are hostile to God. It's the same word that we as that where we as Gentiles, before we were saved and came to Christ as sinners, Romans 5.10 says, we were enemies with God. We were enemies with God. Now see how difficult it is to understand God's ways? To understand God's sovereign plan where he is in complete control? How, how can God's old covenant people be in a position where they are the object of God's hostility? The object of God's judgment. How can that possibly fit into God's plan? Well, Paul tells us in verse 28, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. As a whole, they did not receive the gospel, and this opened up the way to be, for the gospel to be preached to the Gentiles. Gentiles, it was for your sake that God designed stage, stage three, as it were. God is showing mercy to the Gentiles. The Jews' rejection opened the way for the gospel to be preached to the Gentiles and bring about the spread of the gospel. So Paul says to the Gentiles, they are enemies on your account. For had they not been enemies, then the gospel wouldn't have been open to you. In the providence of God and his redemptive plan, the Jews' rejection of the gospel was not aimless. It was not purpose, purpose, <laughs> purposelessness, if that's a word. It had purpose because it was the very means of bringing salvation to others. God's purpose was carried out by the Jews' rejection. And so this carries the possibility that when the gospel has had its full effects among the Gentiles, the Jews will come back. And that's exactly the point that Paul has been making. Remember verse 25 here in Romans chapter 11, the last part of it, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies to God. But Paul goes on to say in verse 28, the second part, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. From the standpoint of God's election, they are beloved of God. And they will always be the beloved of God. Paul here is emphasizing the divine plan of God. Even though Israel had been faithless, and they were for, therefore they're the objects of God's hostility, God had nevertheless work through this faithlessness to bring about his will. He had not forgotten that he had chosen Israel from among all the nations of the earth. He had forgotten, not forgotten that he loves Israel beyond any other nation on the earth. 
Their rejection of the gospel did not change the fact that God has chosen them to be in a special relationship with him. They are still the people to whom God gave his special revelation. He gave them the law. He gave them the prophets. He gave them the word of God. He gave them the temple ceremonies. And it was through them, this is the precious gift, through them whom he would send his son. He would send his son. And so election is an important concept even when the nation has not lived up to all that's involved in its calling. So to put it in terms that we might understand these days, understand politically, God does not impeach those whom he's elected. Never will. Never will. And here Paul says one of the reasons he doesn't is on account of the fathers, on account of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the sake of the fathers. God made a covenant with Father Abraham, and he made those same promises over and over again to Abraham's descendants. And God will carry out every one of those promises. God made promises to Israel and these promises will be kept because they are still God's beloved. Beloved of God. Israel's refusal to accept the gospel did not mean that the gospel was a failure because they didn't accept it. Or that God did not perform all he promised to his ancient people or will not perform it. When the fullness of Gentiles has come in, God will remove that hardening and all Israel will be saved. The whole house of Israel will be saved. In other words, they will receive Christ in faith and God will breathe his spirit into them. Why? Why will God accomplish all of this? Verse 29 of Romans chapter 11. One of the great statements in scripture. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable irrevocable the word translated irrevocable means not to be regretted they're without regret and hence irrevocable in other words god does not change his mind nor does he take something back he gives gifts and he never takes them back he chooses he calls and he never reneges on it What God has done and what God has said stands, and it will stand forever. And Paul speaks specifically of God's gifts. The gifts of God are are irrevocable. And the word gifts here, it's it's a very general term. It's related to the word for for grace, noting that that gift, grace is a what? A free gift of God, but there's other gifts that, that come from God. And we see some of those here in Romans. Back in Romans chapter 9, in verses 4 and 5, Paul lists the specific endowments or gifts that that God has has given to Israel. Uh, The fourth, fourth verse of the ninth chapter. And speaking of the Israelites, he says, To whom belongs, now he's going to list several things which God has given them. The adoption of sons. Isn't that a great gift, to be adopted, to be part of God's family? And the glory, (laughs) how incredible, the Shekinah glory, the visible manifestation of God's presence is given to Israel. And the covenants, not just the, the old covenant we call it, but the covenant God made with Abraham, the covenant God made with David, the covenants, there's all kinds of, of covenants given to them. And the giving of the law. 
and the temple services and the promises whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ. An incredible gift. The Christ will come from you according to the flesh who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. As God's beloved, Israel is a special people and they have special gifts given to them accordingly. The covenants, the law, the promises, the temple ordinances, the adoption into God's family, and and we could name many more. And then Romans chapter 12, the 12th chapter of Romans, and by this time you may be wondering if you ever get to some of your favorite passages in Romans chapter 12 on a Sunday morning here. Romans chapter 12, we see another gift that God gives to those who are his. The spiritual gifts that are given to every believer in Jesus Christ. Uh, Verse 6 of Romans chapter 12. It says, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of faith, if service, it goes down, showing mercy with cheerfulness, let love, you know, all those kind of gifts. And we say this, see the same list over in First uh, Corinthians chapter 12, First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, where Paul expands on this a, a little bit more. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. Then notice verse 7. But to each one, each one what? Each believer in Jesus Christ. Everyone that is his, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are gifted because God has given you gifts. And there's one other gift that we need to mention. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit. At Pentecost, when Peter preached the gospel and his hearers were pierced to the heart and they asked, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins And in fact, even that word forgiveness has the idea of a gift in it. I hadn't even thought of that one specifically until now. And you will receive what? The gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit. When you receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, the moment you trust in Christ, you receive one of the most precious gifts, maybe the most precious gift other than salvation itself. You receive the Holy Spirit. God's Holy Spirit comes and lives on the inside of you to live in you and through you to live the life of God through you and God will never take him away from you. Never. The gifts of God are irrevocable. God will never take them back. Paul also said the calling of God, the calling of God is irrevocable. In other words, God calls, God chooses, God elects, and he does not go back. Nothing, therefore, can prevent Israel from being saved and being restored. Not even their own rebellion, not only their, own, their unbelief they live in now, not because of her ungodliness 
It will be sovereignly removed by God and her sins will be graciously taken away. So what is true of elected believers is also true of elected Israel. And Paul put it this way in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 24. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. You can put that on your refrigerator. <laughs> Read it several times a day. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. And so in Romans chapter 11, verses 30 and 32, that we've, all kind, of, we've kind of touched on and, and read already, we see that God designs and controls all of history to display the glory of his mercy to sinners. To display the glory of his mercy. Verse 30 again. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Two basic main themes here, mercy and disobedience. The word mercy carries the basic idea of having compassion for those in need. And that leads to meeting their needs. So it's not just having, all oh, those poor people, I just really feel for them. I, I just feel it, you know. And the word compassion literally means to suffer with. When we honestly have compassion, we feel some of the hurt that they feel. We suffer with them. But mercy is what leads us to meet that need. It's not mercy till we've met the need. Mercy is compassionately meeting the needs of others. And our greatest need as human beings is to have our sins removed and to be given spiritual life. And God's mercy provides exactly that the psalmist said in psalm 85 verse 5 for you lord are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness or that can be translated mercy abundant in mercy to all who call upon you psalm 136 1 give thanks to the lord for he is good for his loving kindness his mercy is everlasting and filled with the holy spirit zacharias the father john the baptist exalted over the, the prophesied ministry of, of his newborn son, saying, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God. Because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. One more scripture. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That was 1 Peter 1.3. God forgives he gives us, forgives us, and it's not deserved. That's grace. And in the same way, he rescinds the punishment for our sins, which we do deserve. And that's mercy. And so as we come to finishing this section, Romans chapter 11, Paul is coming full circle here. Because of Israel's unbelief, the nation was partially hardened, most of them, but that's still partial, temporarily set aside, 
cut off from the olive tree, the root of Abraham, and the gospel was extended to the Gentiles. And if God extended the gospel of grace to pagan Gentiles, even when they were unbelief, how much more will he extend his grace again to his chosen people when they are unbelief? Paul says the Gentiles, you Gentiles were disobedient to God, but now you have been shown mercy because of Israel's disobedience. How much more will Israel, because of mercy shown to you Gentiles, now will it be shown to Israel? And so whether it's Gentile or Jew, salvation is dependent upon the mercy of God. It's not based on merit. It's not based on who deserves it. No one deserves salvation. No one can earn it. It's fully a matter of God's grace and mercy. And about his own gracious salvation, Paul testified in 1 Timothy 1:12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy. I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with faith and love which are found in Jesus Christ. Well, along with mercy, disobedience is a great theme in these verses we've been looking at in Romans 11. And John Murray in his commentary on Romans says this, It is only in the context of disobedience that mercy has relevance and meaning. In other words, unless you recognize the enormity of your own disobedience and your own sin, you will not appreciate the gift of God's mercy. Do you really understand what disobedience to God means? It cuts you off from God. It makes you hostile to God. And God is hostile to you. Paul wrote in Romans 8, verse 7, the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. The mind set on the flesh, that is, it's focused on the things of the flesh. It's focused on the desires on the flesh. It's focused on fulfilling the deeds of, of the flesh. That mind is hostile to God. And the word translated disobedience has the basic meaning of being unpersuadable. Unpersuadable. It denotes an intentional and obstinate refusal to believe and to obey. It's like saying, I know what God says and refusing it. I know, you know, if it's a parent-child relationship, it's the same as saying, well, I know what mom and dad want, but if I can get away with it, <laughs> I'm not going to do it. In his letter to Ephesus, Paul twice refers to unrepentant sinners as sons of disobedience, sons of disobedience. Paul wrote in Romans 5.10, also, if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more having been born, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Your sin manifested in willful disobedience, and here's where we see the providence of God. Here's where we see God is in control. Your sin that is manifested and made known in willful disobedience against God provides a means for God to demonstrate the magnitude and the graciousness of his mercy. The greater I know that my sin is, the more I'm a recipient 
of his graciousness and mercy. Where there was no disobedience, there'd be no need for, and there'd be no expression of God's mercy. In order to reveal himself as merciful, God has permitted sin. Do you ever wonder why sin exists in the world? Well, in his providence, God says, I permit sin so I can be merciful. And he has shut up all the world, says Paul in Romans, Jew and Gentile in disobedience, in order that he might show mercy to all, to all who repent of this sin and turn to him for gracious salvation. This morning as we come to the table of the Lord and partake of the bread and the cup, we celebrate the magnitude and the graciousness of God's mercy. The sovereign God, the creator of the universe, the maker of all things, who, who moves in history according to his unfathomable ways and for his glory, designs and controls all of history. Why? So he can display the, his faithfulness to his promises and display the glory of his mercy to sinners. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of that, that song that is popular today, Who Am I? Who Am I? Let, let this be our, our closing prayer as we prepare to gather at the Lord's table. Who am I that the Lord of all the earth would care to know would care to feel my hurt? Who am I that the bright and morning star would choose to light the way for my ever-wandering heart? Not because of who I am, but because of what you've done. Not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. I'm a flower quickly fading here today and gone tomorrow, a wave tossed in the ocean, a vapor in the wind. Still you hear me when I'm calling. Lord, you catch me when I'm falling. And you told me who I am. I am yours. Who am I that the eyes that see my sin would look on me with love and watch me rise again? Who am I that the voice that calmed the sea would call out through the rain and calm the storm in me? Not because of who I am, but because of what you've done, not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. Our Father, as we close this portion of our time together and worship you, Father, now as we prepare our hearts to gather at the table of the Lord, that place of mercy and grace where we receive both, Father, not because of who we are, but because of who you are. Who you are, Lord. Father, I pray that as we come to the table of the Lord this morning, we will fully sense, yes, both the weight of our sin, the weight of our disobedience, but Father, your tender mercies, your grace as it is given to us, in the greatest gift that was given of all, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And for this we pray in his name. Amen.